This is an AMI podcast. Welcome back to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. Glad you're back, and Lily is too. Ever take an oath? Miss Lily has some exciting information to share about an oath meant to make the outdoors more inclusive. It's called the Outdoors Oath. Lily, Lewis, and I visited the largest antique boat museum in North America, and we have some live audio to share with you. I'll be giving some tips and tech suggestions for boating blind. Do you know I invented the first electric boat that can be driven independently by a blind person? That was 16 years ago, and I'm still tinkering. Speaking of which, I'll reflect on what it means to get your pleasure boat operator certificate as someone without sight. What responsibilities go along with that? Getting schooled with Miss Lily. Hey, Lily, how are you? I'm good, Um, but are you ready to take the oath? What oath? And why should I be taking an oath? Well, the, the outdoorist oath. The outdoorist how did, oath. How could you possibly not know about the outdoorist <laughs> oath? I'm ready to take any oh. oath that has to do with the outdoors. Yeah. Lay it on me. Well, it's the brainchild of three accomplished outdoor advocates. Uh, Teresa Baker, founder of the Outdoor CEO Diversity Pledge and the In Solidarity Project. Jose Gonzalez, the founder and director emeritus of Latino Outdoors. And Wynne Wiley, the photographer and LGBTQIA activist behind Patagonia, the outdoor world's and arguably Instagram's most impactful drag queen. Wow. Yeah. Hey, how did these three amazingly unique outdoor people get it in their heads to make up an oath? And, and who's it meant for? The three founders dreamed up the Outdoorist Oath as a way to build a framework for people to individually focus their advocacy work. This oath itself is a commitment to action any outdoorist can take to support the planet, inclusion, and adventure. Planet, inclusion, and adventure. Cool. Does it provide a path forward to ecological sustainability? Well, the oath isn't here to give you the answers. Instead, no. the oath is here to provide a way of being and doing. Oh. It is designed as a way for any outdoorist or outdoor community to think about the intersections of planet, inclusion, and adventure through their outdoor experiences. A means to identify how each of us can uniquely show up for all three in relationship together simultaneously. I love the inclusiveness aspects of the oath. Can you give us a few more details on, on what this means? According to Wiley, there are lots of spaces in the outdoors where if you're not perfect, you get canceled. Oh, yeah. Marino says they choose the word outdoorist because it was broad and inclusive. The outdoor world is a big place and they wanted to make it as wide ranging as possible. Can you give us some more details on what the oath includes? The Outdoorist Oath includes three basic commitments. Commitment one, I acknowledge that climate change is real and this planet needs allies. Therefore, I will take action for our planet and advocate for environmental justice. Hmm. Commitment two, I acknowledge that systemic and historic oppression is real and that hatred, discrimination, and biases marginalize people. I will actively work to ally all people in the outdoor community. Yay! Commitment three, I acknowledge adventure looks and feels different to everyone. I will support a connection to the outdoors for everyone beyond what adventure means to me. Right on. You know, I like it, but it all sounds pretty high level. Are there some tools for actioning these commitments? 
the Outdoors Oath founders acknowledged that addressing the enormous structural issues of exclusion and environmental collapse is overwhelming, and so they focus on what they call a personal action compass. Okay. Yeah, it's a plan based on the Japanese principles of Ikigai that asks each individual to focus their personal talents and joys on the advocacy work that needs to happen. It's about inviting everyone to reflect on how those actions can have a ripple effect and to know that they're not alone. Basically, it, it recognizes that the kind of action each person can take is different from what the next person can take. Are you the builder, the educator, the healer, the guide, the disruptor, the visionary? Well, I'd like to think that maybe I've been all of those things at one point in time or another. You know, one tool doesn't do all the things you need to do, so sometimes you have to take a different approach. The program introduces what the three founders call wayfinding methods based on metaphors of fire, water, and earth. An example they provide is to think of prescribed burns that can destroy old structures to give way to new ones. You know, First Nations often use controlled burns to get rid of old wood to make room for new growth that's more uh, life-sustaining. How the Founders Welcome People to Take the Oath is a two-hour workshop that gives people a toolkit. It also provided as a free online educational tool, and even in that virtual space, the Founders believe there's magic that's created. Nice. You can visit their website for more details at www.outdooristoath.org. Thanks, Lily. That's super inspirational. Time for the bucket list. And we're here with Rebecca Hotfinger and Matt McVitie, and we're at the Antique Boat Museum in Clayton, New York. Uh, Rebecca, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about where we are. Well, thank you, Lawrence. Um, we are at the Antique Boat Museum, and I first joined the staff here at the museum in 1996 with a new graduate uh, degree in museum studies. 26 years later, I'm now the executive director. And Matt, you're the curator now? I am. I'm a relative newcomer. I've been here just about uh, a little over two years now. So you look after the boats, and Rebecca, you look after everything else. That's right. <laughs> How many boats are here? Uh, over 320. And they range in age from? From the 19th century to, for example, one of our in-water boats was designed in the 1930s, but not built until 1974. Not newer boats, though. We normally have a rule of about 30 to 20 years from the present. Yeah. Uh, so in the last few years, we have started including fiberglass boats. We're not talking freighters or tugboats or fishing boats. These are all personal sort of watercraft, right? Right. Our mission uh, focuses on pleasure craft. Rebecca, this all came about because of the, uh, the focus on summer vacationing on the islands. Well, the Gilded Age was that turn of the century, the late 1800s into the early 1900s, when it was sort of the vacation land. There were 12 trains a day coming straight from New York City, so it was, it was the playground of uh, the folks from downstate at the time. And they had huge houses on islands of their own with giant boathouses. Better known, I guess, as Millionaire's Row, and um, it depicts some of the wonderful large structures by some famed architects as well. And we've got John Peach joining us as well. Hi, how are you, Lawrence? Good, good. Uh, we go back a ways, and John is the uh, Upper St. Lawrence River Keeper and the Executive Director of Save the River, located in Clayton, New York. I understand one of your boats is actually in this museum. Well, it is. It is. What, which boat is it? It's a twin-masted sailing kayak. 
And there was a whole fleet of them around here at one time that they used to race. So it's a pretty special boat. So we just came inside a, a sort of a roofed-in area. Where are we? So we're in the Dodge Launch Building, and the exhibition that is uh, presented in this particular building is called the National Motor Boating Show, and it depicts uh, the motor boating show of the early 1900s. I love boat shows. <laughs> and this one goes all summer, right? This one goes all summer. This is actually what we refer to as a permanent exhibit. So it opened in 2014, and so in 2024, this this building will be totally redone with a new exhibition. 99.9% .9 of the boats that you see at the museum were donated through the generosity of, uh, of our visitors and patrons. Show me your prize in this collection here. This boat's name is Black and Tan, and it is a Hubert and Johnson 1951 build, what they called their Blackjack 24, 24 feet. And it is specifically set up for saltwater fishing. So Hubert and Johnson was based uh, in New Jersey. Uh, and this boat has all the mounts for downriggers uh, and all that kind of stuff to make it a fantastic fishing boat. Very wide beam, very stable. Um, and though built in New Jersey, it spent uh, the, really the considerable amount of its life here on the St. Lawrence River. So they wouldn't have installed the fighting chair on this boat? Probably not. Yeah, you wouldn't need it on the St. Lawrence River. You'd want more of the open deck space. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And there's two engines on this? Uh, this is a single engine. Okay. Yeah. Inboard? It's an inboard engine. Uh, it, it gets about 22 horse, so it's not a super fast boat, but it's an extremely stable boat. Good for trolling. Good for trolling. Yeah, and there's a little cuddy cabin up front? There or? is, yeah. So you could overnight in this boat in a pinch? In a pinch, two people could spend a night or two if they you know, really, really wanted to, but it's, it's a fantastic day boat for the St. Lawrence River. So if, if this boat went on the uh, market today, mm -hmm. if you had to put it up for sale, what would it sell for? Well, so they're not super common. I always tell people our, our permanent collection, what's really important is the historical value, yeah. not the monetary value. I can tell you that in 1951, when it was built, it sold for less than $7,000. Yeah, that was a lot of money back it, then. It was a lot of money. And is it is it a wood construction? It is. So uh, plywood or? Uh, it's painted mahogany for okay. the most part. There is a little bit of plywood in the build. So this lady found this boat, said, oh, it's just like grandpa, started the restoration, and it was her grandfather's boat. Wow. So this is the Misbehave, which is a single cockpit uh, little race boat. It's 16 feet, so you can imagine. It flies. It flies, yes. It's, is it an inboard motor built in? It is an inboard motor, and the engine compartment's forward. So you're looking over the long deck from your rear cockpit. And, wow. you know, really feeling like you're in a, a speedster because that's what it is. So it's a Garwood speedster. There's misbehave here, um, but there was a series of these misconduct. And one of our uh, trustees actually has just bought a reproduction and named it Misfire. <laughs> and this is a wood boat as well? It was this is a wood boat, From, yes, from what absolutely. era? Uh, the year on this one is 1935. 1930s. So yes. how fast would a boat like this go, Matt? Uh, this would get above 40 miles an hour, which you can imagine in, in a 16-foot boat with that kind of rear cockpit, you would have felt like you were the fastest thing on the river. So also in this building, we have our outboard motor collection, or a small portion of it. So the gentleman that owned the Misbehave at one time, his name was E.J. Noble, and he'd made a lot of money in the broadcasting business, and he had a sweet tooth. He bought the company that eventually made the Lifesavers, and they were making that candy at one time. They... He had him put a hole in it. Oh, it looks like a real lifesaver on a boat. But Mr. Noble had a whole fleet of these type of fast boats. Some of them were the fastest boats on the river at the time. And he ran around here. He loved them. His 
kids love them, now his grandkids love them. Rebecca, where are we now? So we're in the McNally Yacht House, and this is an open-sided yacht house that has three slips and houses all of our in-water fleet boats. So everything from our small sailing craft that we use in our livery to our motor boats, including uh, this zipper, which is... The zipper? That's the on your zipper. website. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes. So you take people out for cruises on the zipper. We do. So the zipper is uh, quite a fast boat. The zipper is not necessarily a fast boat, but it's our one boat that is actually a sub-chapter T boat by U.S. Coast Guard standards, which means we can carry up to 17 passengers on board this boat. It was built in the 70s, but its design was first um, uh, developed in the 30s by Purdy, and it was actually commissioned by the Stroh Brewery family. So this boat is Pardon Me, which is um, often referred to as the world's largest runabout. It's built in 1948. This boat has some real beautiful swishes and swoops to it, and it's all wood. It's all wood, except it does have a nice complement of chromed items from the intake <laughs> and uh, the other hardware that's visible. So. And how long is this boat? It's 48 feet. That's huge. It's an inboard, and that's uh, kind of the fun uh, piece of this, if you will. If you love power, this is really, uh, it's powered by a Packard PT engine. The big landing craft in World War II used engines of this type. Lots of horsepower. Uh, lots of horsepower. So this boat would fly. It does. <laughs> <laughs> nice. How would the builder get their hands on a military engine to put into this boat? Did so, they yeah. just surplus after the war? Kind you're, of thing? you're absolutely right. So during World War II, the, the United States government had a lot of them built. The PT boats in World War II had three of these engines in them. Yeah. Uh, so there were a lot of surplus after the war, and they're a big, complicated engine. You know, there were uh, some work boats on the river after the war that had these Packard engines in them. When this was being built in 1948, it was actually a relatively inexpensive engine to acquire. And because of the size of Pardon Me, you know, it's a super runabout, so it needs a super-sized inboard to push it around. And fuel mileage on something like this? If you're running it, you know, kind of full bore fast, it's about 100 gallons an hour. 100 gallons an hour. And how, how many miles would you go in an hour? This boat, well, this boat at full bore can get uh, over 70 miles an hour. So 70 miles and 100 gallons. Yep. All right. It's not the cheapest way to go, but you no. would have to carry 100 gallons. Does it even carry 100 gallons? It does. It has two fuel tanks in it. We keep two different types of fuel in this. So this engine would have originally run on a higher octane gasoline. You're right. So we run uh, 100 oil lead in it. Uh, and then we have a tank that has pump gas in it as well. So if we're running at 35, 40 miles an hour, we can get by with your regular pump gas. Yeah. But to get it to those really fast speeds, we need to put the high octane in it. The other part of this, Lawrence, is the the skill it takes and the craftsmen to maintain these boats. And how often would you have to sort of re-varnish a boat like this? These boats get maintenance coats of varnish, uh, sometimes once a year, uh, sometimes every two years. And most of these boats are built out of mahogany. So again, a hardwood, very, very rot resistant. This is the Edward John Noble Historic Stone Building. Uh, this uh, is a building from the 19th century. So originally our campus was a boat and a shipwright facility where boats were uh, manufactured. So this is the only building on campus that's left during that time period. It's just a wonderful boat shop space. Our master boat ride actually has an upcoming class on bronze casting that's gonna be based out of this building. Uh, paddle making is coming up this weekend. When I was a kid growing up, this was one of the most beautiful wooden boats that was still running in the river. And under name was Footloose on one side and Fancy Free. Oh, nice. That's and lovely. it was high speed and it ran around the islands quite often with beautiful young ladies in the boat. 
and it caught every boy's imagination. But this boat back in uh, about 1963 or 64 ran up on one of our little islands, hmm. high and dry. It was coming back from a uh, cocktail run over in Alexandria Bay. So it was built in 1937, and Footloose and Fancy Free had a really, really spectacular engine originally, which throughout its history, the power plant had been changed about five or six times. But we found proof, uh, primary source evidence, that the original engine was a Scripps Company uh, 302 V12 engine. Uh, and we actually had uh, that model engine in our collection. The only problem is, is that it was a shell engine. It was assembled for display only. Mm -hmm. So we've actually been working with a lot of machinists and mechanics uh, and vendors throughout the country to put this shell engine back together, repair the parts that were broken, replace missing parts. Uh, and we're coming up hopefully in the next few months where this engine is going to be installed with all the correct gauges, but it'll have that original power plant and sound just the way it would when it would have come out of the fixture of the morning shop. Pretty much authentic. This engine, for example, um, was built in 1933, but it wasn't sold until 1937 because it is such a massive uh, and expensive engine. Yeah. So they had it on their showroom floor for many, many years because really no one could afford it. This is uh, Joe Amadolia and he's from Round Island. He has with him today his triple cockpit Garwood runabout, which he fully restored himself. Joe, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. So uh, how long have you owned this boat? 33 years. 33, and how old is the boat? 1937. Do you know who owned it before you? Yeah, I'm the second owner. I bought it from this area. Why this boat? I had a smaller boat. I came to the boat show in the mid-80s, and I had a family, growing family, and I realized I was going to need a triple cockpit. Um, this boat is 25 and a half feet. What's the definition between a single, double, and triple cockpit? Well, it's the seating areas. The double cockpit would have two seating areas, one usually in the front and one right behind it, or sometimes the engine is in between and the second one is way in the back. This has two forward seating areas and one way in the back. Some people refer to that as the rumble seat or the mother-in-law seat. Oh, that one at the, yeah, with the pop-up kind of backrest. Yes. And, and where, where is the uh, pilot sitting? Um, first cockpit. First, first cockpit here. And this one, you drive a pilot from the left-hand side. There's no rhyme or reason to why some steering wheel is on the left or the right. This one just happens to be on the left. And, and the motor in this boat? The motor in this boat is a 1937 Chrysler Royal. It's a straight eight-cylinder motor, eight cylinders straight in a row. And uh, that's a long motor. It's a long motor, and it's <laughs> it's only 140 horsepower, but it smooth, eh? It's smooth and it's very economical. This this big triple cockpit is more economical than the 16-foot Boston Whaler we have. I wanted the full 1937 experience, so I wanted. Powered by a 1937 motor. Are you going to fire it up for us? I'm going to fire it up for you. Well, that's cool, man. Thank you so much. I'll open the engine hatches. You might hear now, a little more. So the engine hatches always need to be open to get the gas fumes out, right? That's the story. Okay, so what do you, what do, you do to start this motor? Walk us through the process. We turn the, I turn the ignition on. It's warm now because I just came over from the island. It's about a two-mile run. Yeah. So it, shouldn't, it should start without choke. And I just turn the ignition on, give it a little bit of gas. The... Model is in the middle of the steering column, is a little lever. And we hit the start button. Okay. Actually, give it a little more gas. It's not making me look like a hero today.
below water. The exhaust is above water, barely above water, but the water circulates, gets pulled up through the engine, formed, and then dumped out the exhaust. That's a wet exhaust as opposed to a lot of the race boats have dry exhausts and they, they're like a car. Yeah, it's uh, more, more echoey. Yeah, this is uh, a lot more uh, no. How many horsepower? 140. That's a lot. And I'd like to have that engine in my truck. <laughs> I don't know if they ever put them in trucks, but Chrysler put them in lots of uh, automobiles. Oh, a lot, yeah. You hear about them in the old, uh, the, the, the big sort of sedans from. Yeah, they were in the New Yorkers and the uh, and the Windsors and the and the Royals and the uh, a very very similar uh, motor to this. Uh, parts are interchangeable. Well, thanks so much for uh, giving us a tour of your boat and uh, letting us hear it. Well, you're welcome. And if you ever need a hand uh, with the varnishing or anything, I understand John's really good at it. <laughs> when was the sort of heyday for the boating, pleasure boating on the St. Lawrence River? I think in the, starting in the, uh, the 1910s, there was a whole class of racing boats called numbers boats that were specifically built up in Ogdensburg for the gentlemen to race on Sunday afternoons. I think the heyday was up until the 50s. And then I guess people started going to other places for their vacation, too. I mean, the, the Thousand Islands stopped being sort of the premier gold standard vacation. Railroads weren't coming up here as often. Uh, certainly the high highways, the interstate highway system, and then airlines became cheaper. And that is when we started to see people drift away from the Thousand Islands. They could take their vacations in the Caribbean. They could go anywhere. They could go out west. With COVID, we saw a lot of people come back up into the area. I think it was rediscovered. Rebecca, you know, one thing I've noticed is you can touch everything, you can feel it, you can smell it. And, and by the way, everything smells really clean here. I don't oh, smell any <laughs> gasic oil anywhere. Well, that's good. <laughs> but it's, it's more than just boats behind glass. Like, you know, I hate going to some of these museums and it's all boats and bottles, right? One of the most important things to the Antique Boat Museum is uh, for its visitors to experience recreational boating and not only read the signs and, and you know, be able to look at things and learn, but to feel it. Uh, and so to get out on a runabout or to get out on a rowing skiff. So we have a working livery where at no extra charge during the open hours of the livery, our visitors can come in and try their hand at rowing a St. Lawrence River skiff. Thanks so much for taking the time and showing us around. Outdoor tips and tech. Did you know marine electronic manufacturers have been making self-driving boats for decades? GPS gave these automated boats even greater abilities. Companies like Johnson Outdoors manufacture the Minkota trolling motor found on most fishing boats at the front. It's an electric motor that you control with a hand and a tiller or remotely using a remote. It has a feature that allows you to create a GPS trail. So basically you start, you press the start recording button, and as you move along the lake and along the shoreline, around islands and through channels and get to your end destination, you then hit save. Then you can hit retrace the track and your boat will basically take the exact path you just followed to where you started. It's saved in the memory of the trolling motor. So then you can repeat that back and forth anytime. 
The trails can be as long as three kilometers long and you can save a few of these. So literally you could go a long way. But you know what? If you have no other means of getting back in your boat other than this specific technology, you probably shouldn't be using it. You need to have other backup technologies or systems that'll come into play should this one fail. And you should also be able to navigate your watercraft without technology, just using your senses. Be safe out there. In Canada, the federal government passed a law requiring that anyone operating powered watercraft, electric motor, gasoline motor, diesel motor, whatever power system is operating your boat, needs to have a pleasure boat operator's certificate. Amazingly, no eyesight is required to get your pleasure boat operator certificate. You can take the course online, and once you pass, they will mail you your certificate to your home. I have mine, and I'm totally blind. I got mine 15 years ago when I set up that electric fishing boat, the blind fishing boat. But it doesn't mean you should be getting behind the wheel of your family's wake boat and taking it out for a spin on your own. You can't legally drive that boat, but you better make sure there's someone there who has their certificate standing next to you and serving as your eyes on the water. Can you imagine if you ran someone over? The poor person, their family, what would the police say? And what would your boat insurance company say? I have a much bigger watercraft myself. And trust me, my insurance company wants to know who's driving my boat. I have to give them the list of names and the kind of experience they have as a boat operator. I make a commitment that I'm not driving that boat. Be smart, be responsible, be safe. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit me at lawrencegunther.com to keep up to date on my blogs and videos. Subscribe to get the latest episodes of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther by visiting your favorite podcast provider. I want to thank Nazreen Abdel-Majid, the manager of AMI-audio, Zandy Frank. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.